This episode is sponsored by EY and Brave. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey and I'm here with my co-host Sheila Warren. Uh, it's the two of us just having a bit of a banter and we'll see where it goes. But I think, you know, Sheila, it being the first week of April in the sort of wake of uh, a very active march in, <laughs> uh, in the world of crypto and, and Washington, I think we can't really avoid but to talk about what some are calling the war on crypto. So I don't know, you're close to all this, obviously, uh, in your role at the the Council uh, for for, for Crypto Innovation. What do you make of it all? Is there really a concerted effort to kneecap or neuter or, you know, stop this industry coming out of, you know... Oh, Michael, where where to begin? So first of all, I'll start by saying, this is, in fact, me. Uh, I just have partially lost my voice, but it is it is me. <laughs> and I think in the age of ChatGPT4 and everything else, we always have to verify uh, right. that we are it's indeed. Truly Sheila we Warren. Are. It definitely <laughs> yes, is. I can vouch for that. I will put my uh, reputation you know, on the line. Yeah, there it is. But I do think that it, it's important to note that to the extent there is a, a war, uh, you know, I always find this imagery kind of entertaining, but this war on crypto, it is a uniquely American war. Okay. Mm-hmm. But nobody else in the rest of the world is thinking about blockchain technology, digital assets, crypto, however you want to frame it in this negative way. Is That's mm. not a thing. Mm. And I think that is extremely important to note. Last week, you know, we, we recently took a big delegation through London and Brussels. We engage all over Europe, as you know. Uh, I was I had the luxury of zooming in to a panel in Japan at FinSum with the head of the JFSA. I mean, the, the rhetoric and the way people talk about, about this opportunity is as positive as I've ever heard it everywhere hmm. else in the world. This is a wow. uniquely American phenomenon. So I just want to start there. The next thing that I'll say is, you know, having now spent a, a more time than I've ever spent in my life, really, in Washington over this past year and a bit, the idea that there is the capacity and capability for the kind of coordination folks in crypto are talking about yeah. is somewhat hilarious to me. Okay, that, that's just not the nature of the beast. I mean, again, I will... I will remind everyone of the votes, the the process and voting procedures it took to get a Speaker of the House elected this time around, right? So mm-hmm. certainly when it comes to the legislature, I don't think anyone's thinking there's some, I don't know, Kabbalistic, Svengali, you know, kind of situation going on. And is that the case elsewhere in the administration? I mean, they're just, look at the differences in the SDC and CFTC and the open turf war that they're having mm. in paper at this point, right? Is that but, a function of there just being already something different about the United States, whether these competing regulatory agencies that exist, right? In other places, you don't have nearly the same that's true. visions, right? So that very yeah. presence of that creates this competitive element to it all. Here's the thing. I think most folks in crypto have spent a lot of their careers working in very nimble startup kinds of environments. You and I have spent quite a bit of time working in large bureaucratic institutions. Hmm. What do they all have in common? (laughs) 
right? Mm. They all are dysfunctional in this, in some new and, and, and unimaginable, you know, unique way, right? But all yeah. giant bureaucracies have tremendous lag, turf wars, and internal politics, and all of that. The U.S. government, possibly the largest bureaucracy in the world, is similar. It's got similar politics and internal dramas and personalities and all this kind of stuff, right? And it's a gigantic bureaucratic machine. And the idea that there's the ability to kind of turn that all and laser focus on something is just, it's, it's not, yeah. it's a bit overstated. Now, all that being said, I was all preface, believe it or not, is to say there is clearly, 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 clearly something going on in the United States that is anti-crypto. That is extremely mm-hmm. obvious. And you know, no one listening to this needs me to tell them that or needs, you know, or you don't need me to tell you that either. You know that full well. That That's clearly happening. And we're seeing that come out of a variety of different places. And so it's not crazy for people to imagine that somehow there's this massive coordination happening. But I mm-hmm. think what is far more likely is that this is a response, again, to the events of last November and FTX and the fact that Sam Bankman-Fried, everyone's, you know, unfavorite wonderkind, right, was yeah. like running around Washington doing all the things with all the people and all those people are now like, oh God, that guy can't, can't do that again. You know, he, his breadth of engagement across mm-hmm. government was pretty profound. Yeah. And all those people are, ha- it's not crazy to imagine that all of them are having a somewhat, or many of them are having a somewhat similar reaction to that situation that's mm-hmm. leading them to be deeply skeptical all the way to overtly hostile towards crypto. Yeah. I, I, I mean, this is actually going to be the topic of my column this week. Um, it's kind of like the thanks, Sam. Uh, uh-huh. headline because uh, somebody, somebody you know who, who had sort of done the rounds in DC suggested to me that that's what they were hearing that this is payback and and it's like how dare you come into our house embarrass us as you did shower us with with this money and then turn out to sort of pull off this massive alleged very much apparently fraud so that's it like whatever it is I, there's a lashing out that's going on there's a yeah. you know do something to show that we're you know rightly and angrily pissed off and so i think that there's that but then like that's also just that's just nuts <laughs> and, and maybe that's maybe that's to your point that's the nuttiness of a bureaucracy like rational things don't happen because the politics gets in the way and yes it also means there's very unlikely to be coordinated action or a war but it also means that you're you're liable to have these sort of political processes rise to the fore just because some personality has been dinged by it. But I think the thing that was most worrying for me was the fact that, you know, there was the White House report, right? Because just a year ago, we had the executive order that really seemed quite forward-looking. It had a constructive view and it had a mandate, actually, for agencies to to get together and try to come up with something that's a framework so that the United States could lead in innovation. And if you're telling us which sounds absolutely accurate to me, that nowhere else in the world is this happening, then that risk is a very real one. That, that, Correct. That, that innovation is going to go somewhere else. And that was the view of the White House back then. How has it shifted so much to this? And the well, fact I'll that it came you. out of the House, yeah. the White House gives it that sort of formal imprimatur, which I think is is problematic. Yeah. So here, here's how this, again, works. And you and I have worked in numerous bureaucratic institutions of greater or lesser bureaucracy over the course of our, our illustrious careers, if I may, Michael. Yeah, and you know, I, and what I think we also very, very have certainly indeed, yes, indeed, 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 indeed. <laughs> what I have also learned over the course of that process is that a lot of the tenor and tone of a particular engagement with whatever it is stems from one or two people who kind of get to set that at the top of the house, right? 
And you and I have both been those people in various institutions. I mean, I think, you know, look no further than my last institution where I worked. So I do think that the world at the White Forms, House. Those, are those listeners who don't know this, but may have heard of it, <laughs> the West. Anyway, <laughs> ca- it, yes. ca- carry on, Sheila. Yeah. So, so I do think at the White House, you know, you did have a more balanced perspective based on folks who were in a position of influence in the White House during the issuance of the last executive order. Hmm. And as I've talked about on the show multiple times, as people get more and more engaged with the digital asset and crypto ecosystem, they also fall in love with it for all the many reasons that so many of us have. And a lot of them leave for industry mm-hmm. or they leave those roles, right? And there's one person then, in particular I think you're going for here who did yes, do I don't that, think right? we need to, I don't think we need to out that individual. There She's is great, definitely, but, yes. there is definitely a whole, when those, mm-hmm. when some of those key positions turn over or change, that either there's a vacuum or there's no counterweight. So what happened in the White House is there was there was actually, I think, a quite healthy tension going on until someone left between you know skepticism and positivity, all of which was somewhat at least marginally evidence-based. Because I think we can acknowledge, and we do on the show all the time, that certainly crypto has its share of bad actors, if not made outside share of bad actors. And that is also true. But mm-hmm. you had counterweight and people pointing out, especially this individual, pointing out like, these are the positive things. These are the other, this is the, the balance, right? You don't have that balance anymore. That position has not been replaced by somebody right. who has the knowledge base yet to understand that, let alone put their political weight behind, you know, being balanced. So you've now had a tip. And that's that's really what you see. That's really what you see in mm. the new EO is just a couple of different people who are influential, indicating a different tone and tenor around the whole topic. It's like the, the theory of, of human organization in a way, right? Like that, that this, these things happen because of the structures and the the power structures that we build into these hierarchies, which actually brings me to the interesting point that in some respects, these sorts of problems highlight the value of, at least where it's effective, decentralized governance. That, that in fact, you know, some of yep. the ideas coming out of the blockchain world are in fact an antidote to this. So they may create other problems, you know, the inefficiencies of it, the failure to, to get things done in a decentralized environment where you need to find consensus. But the, one of the big selling points is that they can't, they can't actually be corrupted by some figure who's got some beef against one person or is ill-informed or whatever it is that makes that sort of point of failure so dangerous. And there's, you know, those, I think those two factors here were, were there. So, so clearly there's like almost an interesting argument with this, but I think also where this is going, if I'm going to take a positive spin on what you're saying, is that these things will pass, right? Like th- that if Correct. it is not a coordinated takedown, this is not some sort of like, okay, we're putting all of our nuclear weapons and pointing them at this industry, that in fact, the passage of time will lead to sort of cooler heads prevailing. And yes, more knowledge, more awareness, more appreciation of the value. Then yes, if it's that, if it's just this monumental slip up, but fueled by sort of legitimate anger, then again, there's a moment which these things may, may come around and and I think like the fact well, that the rest the question, of the world is so so much more upbeat through this you're saying is going to put so much pressure on on the US to sort of do something. Well, more. so let me say a couple of things. So first of all, is you know, DC is Veep. It's not health of cards. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like that that's just that's just the reality of it. So <laughs> if you've seen those two shows, if you haven't, yes. they're both fantastic. Uh, you know, yeah. If you've seen the two of them, right? It, it, it we're talking right. about Veep, not House of Cards. Like that one, is just, one of the Veep being dysfunctional, House of Cards being the Im- image of a much more coordinated conspiracy, right? That's right. And then like a couple, you know, the people the, like, can, there are puppets, puppet masters yeah. moving things puppet around masters. as opposed to just like utter constant dysfunction. 
and I say that with a tremendous amount of respect of for folks in Washington. It's not, actually, right? yeah, yeah, it's not individuals. It's the nature yeah. of the system. And some of that, right. again, some of that friction to get to your point about governance, we could have a whole episode on that topic. Some of that friction is actually healthy, right? Mm-hmm. There are checks and balances built into our system, et cetera. But as I often say to people, okay, okay, you say you hate the SEC. You don't hate the SEC. What if Hester Peirce were the chair of the SEC? You love the SEC, mm-hmm. right? So we can't discount the fact that the individuals that are in these positions are deeply and highly influential. And, and yet again, that's, I think that's a classic example. So when we're thinking about a longer term strategy, we have to think about what the agency's mandate is, what it could be, what it's done, what it hasn't done over the course of time, and recognize that any individual commissioner or chair is temporarily in the position. Now, the challenge, Michael, and here I'll push back a little bit on this idea that the rest of the world's engagement is going to somehow push the U.S. to a better, uh, you know, better using better in terms of what's better for industry and better for consumers and industry position. I, I think there's an element, of, there's a clock here. And, mm. and the reality is that, you know, you've got the U.K. actively trying to attract builders and founders and the industry, you know, we, to we, its borders. We you've have got, the head of their new digital asset group, the parliamentary group, uh, speaking at consensus, actually, no doubt bringing that message. Yeah. You know, you've got Japan trying to really provide um, some clarity and guidance here, which is getting, you know, it's getting mixed reviews because it's it's stricter than some of the rules mm-hmm. that other featured countries and regions. I'm sorry, I'm doing, doing yep. multiple sales plugs here, but yes, we have, a, <laughs> we, have a, we have a session on Japan, but yep, carry on. Yeah. So you've got, you know, and those are just two examples. You've got Mika about to land the final vote and then swing to implementation, which is yep. a clear set of rules in the EU. You've got Brazil engaging, you've got basically everybody else who's a big major economy is looking at this stuff and saying they're not only not waiting for the U.S. to my kind of metaphor here has been land the regulatory plane, right? Not even Mm. waiting for that to happen. They're taking advantage of the fact that the U.S. is not doing it. They're seeing it as competitive, like overtly. Mm. They're saying this is an opportunity for us to land some rules, to attract this industry and to build this in our likeness, as as it were, right? And, and so I don't know that the U.S. is going, I, I truly do not know if the U.S., by the time it kind of gets it together, right. is going to be able to make up that difference. Because this, as we all know, this, this innovation moves faster. It's just so fast. The pace of, of right. engagement and innovation is so fast. But at the same time, it's going to yeah. have to do something, even if it's too late. Like, what's well, it's hard to imagine the U.S., I mean, for all of its faults, there is this correcting mechanism that tends to sort of find its way in through the U.S. system. One way or another, I mean, right? I, that's not untrue. But like, look, I did this this tweet throughout a, bit, a while back that went viral on semiconductors and kind of mm. saying I'm observing, you know, the the desperate the desperation in the administration trying to get semiconductor manufacturing back onshore at the same time as it is either allowing mm. or encouraging crypto to offshore, right? Either passively right. allowing it or actively encouraging it. Regardless, the outcome is the same, right? It's it's moving offshore. And, and trying to get it back. I mean, watching what's happening in chips and everything else and trying to get the chips out and trying to get semiconductor manufacturers to come back on shore. Yeah. Ironically, that is actually an easier proposition because it's a matter of like, it's not easy. It's building a plant, yeah. it's hiring labor, you know, but it's like, it's a, it's a very um, linear kind of process. But trying to get code rewritten or adjusted mm-hmm. to a new set of rugs, that's almost impossible. Once the ship has sailed, it's done. Right. I, I, th- I think another factor here is that the real attractive part, uh, in many respects, of uh, any you know innovative industry, yes, it gets set by the regulatory environment. Really important to have that in place. But once you've got it, and it is actually the sort of network effects of the ecosystem that builds around it. That's and right. so you're not going to want to leave Dubai if that's where everybody is, and sort of like yeah. try to rebuild a Silicon Valley that didn't that has now been decimated around crypto. Whereas with 
you know, semiconductors, you yes, you can throw a chunk of government capital, literally exactly. taxpayer dollars, at building a fab and building out a plant, right? You can't say, hey, here's a chunk of money, build it. You know, they say, no, I, where, where am I filling the developers? Where the, where's the ecosystem? Exactly. Where's the environment, right? So I think that's one of the great risks. Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. With Brave Wallet, you can securely manage your crypto across 100 chains, including Ethereum, L2s, Solana, and more. Buy, send, hold, and swap crypto and NFTs, all right in your browser. No extensions required. Download the Brave browser today to get started at brave.com forward slash wallet. You know, hey, let's get back to the topic of this this podcast, right? From the very beginning, money reimagined. The real, I think, seminal element here is that, wow, what if, if that does happen? If in fact, you know, the US seeds leadership on digital assets. And we do believe that this, in fact, is the direction that money and finance is ultimately going to go. And I think these countries wouldn't be doing this if they didn't understand that that's it. Then we truly are talking about a re-architecting of the global financial system that doesn't have the United States in the center of it, which is profound, right? I, I think, Michael, that's exactly what we're talking about. And the fact that this is not the number one discussion on everyone's minds in Washington. Amazing. Right? My like, mind, holy, I was my mind. Because, you know, there, and here's the thing I find so, so interesting about this is there really is this belief, and I do not understand, there really is a belief that the U.S. can somehow construct a digital currency, digital dollar, whatever it is, that is going to hedge the digital yuan, even though China has is years ahead of us in terms of that being in production and is years ahead of us in terms of keeping and supporting knowledge within you know, their, their country and their, their ecosystem, like their, their broader ecosystem of, of influence, mm. which is bigger and bigger and bigger. So look, yep. here's, here's how I lay this out. And, and some of this is doomsday scenarios. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But when you look at the fact that you've got many countries in the global South under crippling debt burden still to this day, and we've talked about this on the show, right? Mm -hmm. uh, colonialism, effects of colonialism, effects of de-risking uh, for a variety of reasons, and just the immense debt burden a lot of them have, which has not relieved. Then you've got the fact that Let's think about, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. You've got increasing climate migration happening, climate refugees. You need infrastructure to support that transition and those, those people moving from place to place, right? All this kind of stuff. You need then someone to build that infrastructure, okay? What are your options? So at some point, and then again, I'm just a bit doomsday scenario in some ways, mm. China comes in and says, and they've already done this, they've already come in and said, we're willing to make massive infrastructure investments into this place, right? right. Whether it's shipping, whether it's ports, whether it's roads, whether it's whatever. We've already it's been trains. doing it. So I, I mean, this, we, we know doing, about all this right? infrastructure exactly. investment it's across the new colonialism. everywhere else, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. The new, it's the new colonialism, right? And so, but in exchange for that, you need to be accepting the digital yuan as coin of the realm, right? This needs to be legal tender mm -hmm. in your country, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Who's going to say no to that? 
And so the idea that people are like, oh, I talked to people about this in Washington. It's like, oh, well, no one's going to take China's surveillance money and use it as our data. Like maybe not in the United States, but there's a mm-hmm. whole big world out there, friends. And so as I've seen the resurgence of American exceptionalism, and mm-hmm. I think this happened in many countries during the pandemic is everyone was stuck in their borders for two years and was like, hey, not too bad here, you know, in, in many ways, right? Only like very elite people were actually traveling during some of that time. People kind of doubled down on this populism notion that my country is the best. I don't need anybody mm-hmm. else. You've seen its effects in trade as supply chains got disrupted. People started to move manufacturing other things back home and onshore them to be less dependent, less interdependent. And there's kind of this blindness to what is actually happening in many parts of the world that still are very dependent on anyone who's willing to make these kinds of massive, large-scale investments into their their borders and their borders. So when I think about all of this, I just say we are we are the United. When I say we, the United States is just letting this go, like mm. we're just actively in many ways just letting it go and saying, "Hey, everybody, we don't believe in this because." the rules that we have not ever laid out or laid down have somehow been violated in some fashion that is very ambiguous. And we need to like show a lesson to the tech elites, which is yeah. a tech lesson going on for a while, right? Show a lesson to the tech elites. And therefore, we're going to push all this stuff away. And we're going to say, not here, not in my country, not on my watch. Right. And damn the consequences, right? In some ways, damn the torpedoes. So it's just a which very... Is, which is very frightening. But I, I, look, I, I wouldn't, I'm necessarily going to push back, but I think the counterpoint that you would put in a, in a sort of a, an era of globalization to the idea that yeah, all these other countries are, uh, will sort of like hold their nose and accept the, the Chinese, you know, digital yuan as their, as their currency is that companies, supply chain uh, participants, you know, the actual sort of private entities that really are the ones that drive whether they are African or Asian or, or from Europe are going to have a hard time knowing that they may well be giving up trade secrets, right? There's always been a little bit of a uh, a convenient like protection from the fact that companies don't want to do this sort of things. However, I think this is where so that would be the one thing that might sort of like be a resistance that the the Chinese would have to overcome. The real problem though is that you know all of this is coming in concert with you know a pushback against globalization, against that very idea yep. that there is this That's kind right. of like private driven globalized and you know structure or capitalist structure with all these companies that are all interacting and selling and buying from each other that in fact you're starting to lead to these more state capitalist models like Russia is of course the quintessential right. example well, this, this is what I'm saying exactly right and so so and so you wonder the real scary thing I hate to be to push this doomsday stuff further but like <laughs> um like in Africa right yeah these are there are all these dictatorships yeah you know, uh, that that this are, is exactly that essentially right. get entrenched in this and they, there is no private sector voice that's able to say, no, don't give us that Chinese thing. That's going to like, nope, I'll take this. That is scary. That is the mechanism by which fascism and authoritarian takes takes charge. So it, It's just the idea that- We have to wind this up. So I hope you can do so in a positive light because- Well, I, yeah, you know, but, well, well I'll, I'll start negative and then go positive. But when, okay. you, when, you, when you think about the fact that we're talking about to some extent planned economies, and I don't mean that in the formal sense, but when you're talking about government building infrastructure- and you're talking about sometimes corrupt government building infrastructure, right? And you're talking about zero uh, concern about uh, how companies that aren't in pocket are getting, you know, are, are getting benefit from this. You're actually almost end running around those enterprises directly to consumers and to citizens, right? And you're saying like the minute that you're able to use, we've already seen pushback in Zambia and India and other countries previously against the advent of the digital yuan. So for all I know, these folks are going to say, no, 
we don't want your, you know, as, as someone put it to me, Chinese surveillance money, which I thought was like the most clear. I was like, what? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an extreme way to Chinese describe it money, as you know. well. Like it's just such right, an easy yeah, cop yeah, out. Right. I agree. So it's much more or, complex or, than that. That may, that may happen. But what I'm yeah. saying is I don't really see the U.S. And I do think, you know, Biden's Africa tour, all of that is great. I think there's some awareness, the global south. Africa is the biggest markets that exist in the in the world that are untapped markets to the mm-hmm. extent that you think about it from a capitalist model, which I think is how demographics, about it, right? the young younger markets, all those sorts. That's of right, exactly right? Yeah. the demographics, everything now, right? But I think you know the forum in Davos this year talked about this the poly crisis, and I think that people forget about the effects of climate migration on all of this, and the fact that those markets are shifting across borders because of tension and distress and the, the realities around water supply, like all these things, arable land, like all of these things are very, very real factors. So you're going to get this. You're already seeing more movement in Sub-Saharan Africa and migration than we've seen in, in the preceding you know, 100 years, which is a long period of time, right? So all of this is just happening in parallel. And at some point, you just need an infrastructure investment. And it's, it's a dire situation. And I, hmm. to me, you know, we're not doing much to stop climate. Right? So oh, that is the crisis that I think is going to drive all this. At some point, mm-hmm. people are going to say, and by this I mean government leaders are going to say, we just need infrastructure. And we need to we need to fund it for however we can. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna, we're not gonna be precious anymore about you know what we're giving up to do it. And we've seen this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. everyone knows that we've we've documented so much about what happens in refugee camps, what people are willing to give up of their biometrics and other kinds of entity because they need food, they need water, they need medical care, they need basics for survival. And mm-hmm. when you think about that at a government level, it becomes very scary very quickly. And, and those are realities, I think, that we're not factoring into how migration, how all these all these different phenomena that are happening globally, that are happening at, at a pace that is ever accelerating, are going mm-hmm. to feed into who actually has the power in the system. And that's going to be the person that steps in as the savior, right? So, and I just think that the way that things are going, you know, with, to your point, with this kind of anti-globalization thing, which is largely at the company and, and private sector level, but also thinking about the unwillingness of countries to step in um, in this kind of way, you're relying a lot on these multinational giant institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, and then you get that debt burden again, right? And you're just mm. in a cycle all over again. So a lot yeah. of this, I think, is coming to, I, mean, I don't, you know, again, I don't, I'm sounding like a Nostradamus or whatever, but it's kind of coming, I feel like it's kind of coming to a head. Don't feel about that, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I feel like the, the reality of digital, digital, portable, programmable money is something that could provide an outlet for some of this, at least, and allow people to kind of maintain and keep value in a way in ways that they, they currently can't because of the realities of what's happening with fiat all, in, in many parts of the world. Right. But all that being said, all that all that scenario painting and, you know, uh, doomsday scenario painting aside, I, I, we are not there yet. Mm-hmm. And I do think the thing I will say in a positive note about the American government is no government is monolithic. Now, of course, the more controlled a government is, the more, you know, what happens at the head, the head of state says goes. But in our government, in the American government, part of that dysfunction, as I noted, part of that friction is actually healthy. And that means that there are many voices in government. There are many folks who deeply understand crypto and digital assets in the blockchain. They understand why it's important. They understand why it's interesting, why it matters. They may not technically have the, all the details, but they certainly see it as something worthy of attention and investment. And it's just a matter of how are those voices positioned? What else is on their plates? How are they positioned in the system to be able to have influence within the system? But they definitely exist. And so the idea that this is like the uniform view of the American government is also just extremely false. And we have to give a lot of credit to people on both sides of the aisle, right? Not just 
Republicans, not just Democrats, but both sides of the aisle who really have made a lot of effort to understand this and who do see this bigger picture and who are trying to uh, talk about this and get this introduced into the conversation. It's just very challenging to do in the wake of massive giant fraud scandal, you know, drama and meltdown of banks, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a very tough thing to interject this perspective, which is a much longer term perspective into the short term crises that we're facing. And and that's just the nature of politics as well. People look at what's in front of them because they're in an election cycle. They want to deal with the immediate crisis. They want credit for dealing with the Mm -hmm. crisis. The crisis needs to be dealt with by someone, to be fair. But the longer term stuff often gets pushed out. It often gets pushed out. Listeners, Sheila and I chatting in the sidelines here and, and commenting how, despite this cold that she's suffering from and the uh, raspy voice uh, that's coming through, on fire today, Sheila. You just like downloaded some really big <laughs> ideas. As, as you suggested, maybe you're just high on cold medicine or something, but it was, it was fantastic. But I'm just going to say one thing, and that is like, I think it's actually a good tease for next week's episode. Like, I do think there's one other area. So climate change is one of these kind of like, moments is a crisis, a crunch that's, that may well drive us to have to take a different approach to, to managing data, managing else. The other thing that a little while ago seemed like a longer or medium longer term problem, and now suddenly feels immediate, is AI. I actually think that, and this we'll talk about this next week, there's a challenge to how we're going to govern this rapidly evolving new technology that is going to be, yes, grabbing our data twisting it, turning it, spitting out ideas and potentially like steering us in dangerous directions or, or positive directions. We don't know. And there's a very strong argument in my mind that there needs to be something like a blockchain model, uh, as, along with a whole bunch of other both technologies and legal structures around it to try to get to a point where this, this evolving singularity doesn't end up really destroying humanity. We had obviously a very senior, you know, Eliza Yudkowsky suggesting that, in fact, if we don't stop AI right now, it's literally going to kill us. There may well be another urgency that ends up like just, oh, my goodness, this is something we need to do now. And the only way to do it is on an international level. Um, So so let's leave that conversation for for next week. But look, guys, you heard it really uh, monumental sort of big kind of unprecedented moment, I would say, in terms of the level of regulatory action that we've seen in the crypto space. It's dangerous for the United States' place in the world and maybe for some of these sort of broad liberal ideas about the way that you know, a global you know, market-based system should work. But uh, you know, as Sheila said, there's also these correcting mechanisms. There, are, there is the passage of time. There's a lot of things still to wash out here. I know for one thing, this industry is definitely not going away. Uh, and that in itself is going to make this just a fascinating and important conversation. So stick with us. There's plenty more of this to come in the you know weeks and months and years ahead. So I'll thank you for that, Sheila. And we'll come back next week and talk more about uh, this and AI. I and can't everything else. wait. Looking forward to it. All right, everybody. That's it for Money Reimagined. Thank you so much for being with us. Do, as I said, come back next week for what it should be hopefully an equally fun, interesting episode. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. The show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined.
or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.